Psalm chapter 28, David writes, To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary, tabernacle. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of His hands. He will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for He has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield in Him My heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts and with my song I give thanks to Him. The Lord is the strength of His people. He is the saving refuge of His anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. If we're honest with ourselves and with our our friends, I think we would all admit, okay, Scratch that. I'll just be transparent with you. You might not be comfortable with transparency yet. Prayer is difficult, isn't it? Prayer is hard for me. It's not easy. Studying the Bible is easy. Singing is easy. Doing good deeds is easy. Giving money is easy. Prayer is hard. And the reason I believe prayer is hard for me is because I have far too much confidence in myself. I have far too much belief that I'm able to handle what life puts in my direction. I have far little, too little trust in the sovereign hand of God. And that if He were to withdraw His help for a moment, I would cease. Okay? So, you didn't come for a confession, but I gave you one. And it's mine. And it's true. Prayer is hard. This is not the preacher saying something to make you think, oh yeah, I struggle with prayer too. No, it's hard. Next to my desk is not a worn out place in the carpet where my knees have worn the carpet from praying. It's my confession. And this week and last week, what God has convicted me of is that's a source of pride in my own life. And if you're in my position, there is a solution. Because it's not only good to say I'm wrong, but it's good to know there is right. And there is hope in the future. And so what my goal in this message is, is not to make you feel guilty because you don't pray enough. But to simply say prayer is available to us as a direct line to a God who created all things we see and cannot see. Has purpose in every action in the world to bring about His glory. And prayer is available to us that we might approach Him, prostrate before His throne, and pray that He act in our life and the life of our friends, our family. We have an open line of communication 
with the living God. David knew this about himself. And prayer is a topic in the Bible that's talked about from Genesis all the way to Revelation as no surprise should come to us. God wants His people to talk to Him. God wants His people to hear from Him. God wants His people to be active in this area of life. He has a desire. And you can't hardly cover Psalm 28 without thinking, hold your place here and turn to Luke 18 where Jesus is talking about prayer. And there's a there's an amazing connection, I think, between what Jesus says about prayer in Luke 18, 1 through 8, and what David says about prayer in Psalm 28. In Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable about a persistent widow. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray, and what? Pray and not lose heart. That's what David's doing in Psalm 28. He's praying, and notice in the opening verse, did did you catch what he said? I've prayed and you have not heard me. And if you keep not hearing me, I'm in, to put it in country board vernacular, I'm in deep. I'm spinning my tires here, Lord, and if you don't help me, I'm going to bury it. That's what David's saying. Very common For us to understand language. And Jesus is saying, when you pray, it's not enough to mouth words and move on, but to pray and not lose heart. Keep praying. You say, I've prayed to God that He would save my husband for 20 years. And He hadn't done it. And I say, pray 21 years. Because that's what Jesus says. Look what he says in this parable. In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but after he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Let me just simply say, Jesus is not saying God is the judge. Don't misunderstand. Jesus is not saying God is bothered because you keep coming, so he finally relents and gives. That's not the purpose of the parable. What Jesus is saying is, don't lose heart. The widow wasn't receiving what she asked for. She kept coming and saying, give me justice, give me justice. And the answer was no, 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 and no. And what did she do with the last no? She came again and said, yeah, but... Listen, i got to have justice. I'm in the tide. I need help. Jesus' focus in the parable is not the judge, but the widow. Look what he does here. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God, contrasted to the unrighteous judge, if we have a righteous God, which we do, will not God give justice to His elect? who cry to Him day and night. Will He delay long long over them? I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? Jesus is not talking about the judge as a parallel to God. Jesus is talking about a widow as a parallel to God's children in prayer. And He's saying, 
if an unjust judge even gives what's been requested at some point, won't God who is just and good and righteous and merciful and gracious give you what you ask? If you don't lose heart. So David says it this way. I call to you, Lord, because you're my rock and you're my, you're my, you're my protection is what he's saying. You're my stronghold. Don't, don't not listen. Don't continue in silence. As if you do, I will go down to the dwelling of the dead, the Sheol, the pit. First of all, we see in this passage, we call on God in prayer because he alone is our hope. Some of you are in terrible marriages. Some of you dress up every week and you come in here and you put on a happy face and everything's good in your marriage because you don't want anybody to know you got problems. And your prayer for that situation went something like this. God, help my husband be the man you want him to be. And then you moved on. Right? And your excuse was, I mean, God knows what I want. God knows what I want. He heard me, so I'm moving on. That's not what David did. That's not what Jesus said to do, is it? What Jesus said to do was to persist, to continue, to not lose heart. What David said is, you're my rock, God. You're my shelter. You're my stronghold. You're my hope. If you don't help me, no one will help me. So what, what, again, back to our marriage analogy. What happens so often in my life and your life when we have a problem is we pray once and then we go about our life finding help in other things. Some of you are a hair's breadth away from a an adulterous relationship in your marriage because you're trying to find help from your coworker. You're trying to be built up in your confidence. You feel beat down at home and you find a resource in your coworker. Some of you are a hair's breadth away from giving up on your kids and giving in to their rebellion. Because you've turned to the help of our society which says children are going to be children. Teenagers are going to be teenagers. Live and let live. Just hope you can navigate the rough spots and they survive. You've thrown yourself up and you haven't prayed that much. You prayed, but you've given up in prayer. You don't see God as your rock, as your only hope. You're not continually staying in Him and pleading with Him to do what only He can do. You're turning to other sources. David, first of all, prays, and we should pray because God is our only hope. We don't have anything else. God is the rock of believers in our life. Which, in this text, it's not talking about a foundation rock. It's talking about a fortress. A rock was a place for them to hide during war, during battle. That was, gave them cover. That's what David's talking about here. You're my shelter. You're my rock. You're my fortress. You're my help. If you don't help, no one will help. That's what he's saying. Secondly, in this point, we see that God answers, God's answer to our needs preserves our life. Look at the second part of verse 1. I become, if you keep silent, if you don't answer me, David's been praying a long time about this. He hasn't gotten an answer. I become like those 
who go down to the pit. If you don't help me, I will go down to death without help. I'm powerless to preserve my own life. I'm powerless to fix this marriage. I'm powerless to fix this financial problem we have. I'm powerless to save my rebellious teenager. I'm powerless. So I'm in God, praying and begging and pleading for His assistance, or I recognize I have no hope and I will go into the pit. I will go into perishing. Sheol was the abode of the dead, and that's, that's the pit he's talking about. This is not to say that David will lose his salvation. This is to say David doesn't see anybody else as his source of help. What is your source of help today? The lack of prayer in our lives says, indicates, that we all believe we have other help. I believe in Christian community. I believe in discipleship. I believe in accountability. I believe in meeting together outside of this meeting and building one another up in the faith. But listen, I can't fix your problems. You can't fix my problems. We need to meet for community. We need to sharpen one another in the faith. But we need to trust God for His help. God is the rock. He is the protection that we so need. God is the one who preserves our life. If He doesn't preserve it, no one else will. God's, finally in this point, we see that God's response is grounded in mercy and holiness. Look at verse 2. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. Why is He pleading for mercy? Because God is merciful. When I cry for your help, when I lift up my hands to the most holy tabernacle. Why is it holy? Because that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where the mercy seat was. That's where the Holy of Holies was. That's where God was. God came there and he lifted his hands. This indicates that David, we don't know when he wrote this, but that David is not in Jerusalem most likely. And when he prays, he turns himself geographically toward the temple and he lifts his hands towards it. In a, in, a, in a posture of submission to God. He says, you are merciful. You are holy. He's crying out to him. Several months ago, I popped into Anderson Bible Church unannounced. Uh, there was no one in the building. I don't think. I don't, there was no one in the secretary's office. And Bob and I are close friends. So I just went and knocked on the door. And as I knocked, I realized that he had a sign posted like I have over here. And it just said, Pastor in Prayer. And I'd already kind of started knocking. You know, it's one of those moments where you realize it says, don't ring the doorbell, and you've already touched the doorbell, and it's kind of, it's kind of a half ding, you know. I have one of those moments. But the door, when I bumped it a little, it creaked open. And there, in his office, alone, is Bob laying out before the Lord. Lips moving. I can't hear his words. Lips moving. Pray. Why? Because God is my only help. He's my only protection. He's the only one who preserves my life. If He won't help me, there is no help. I will go down to death without a solution, without resolution. 
Some of you know those sweet times of prayer, don't you? you? You've done it in the past, and I just want to encourage you, don't give up. That's what Jesus is saying in Luke 18. You've pleaded with God. I'm looking at parents. I'm not looking at any one parent, but I'm looking at parents who I know because I have cried with you about your children that you have pleaded with God to save them. And he hadn't done it. And all David's telling you this morning, all I'm telling you is put yourself in his mercy and cry and pray again. Don't give up. Is our God not merciful? And is he not holy? And will he not protect us? That's the first thing we see in this passage. This passage is, is not unique. It's, it's kind of like a lot of other psalms that we'll deal with as we walk through the psalms. And one of the things that is characteristic of this psalm is that it's divided in stanzas. The first stanza is two verses long. The third stanza is two verses long. The fourth stanza is two verses long. The middle stanza is the emphasis of the passage because it's three verses long. It's longer. So the, the petition section of this is longer, okay? If we haven't gotten there yet, that's the second section. But I'm just saying, it's a common device David's using to pray to God. And so he had discipline in his prayer, and he addresses God as his only hope. Secondly, we call on God for justice and for deliverance. In verses 3 through 5, the emphasis, I said, of the passage is in 3 through 5. That's the emphasis of this passage. God is seen to be our protection in the day of evil. Look at verse 3. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Here, David is recognizing, first of all, that if God doesn't protect him, he will be evil just like his evil enemies. He does away with self-righteousness, in other words. Now, I don't know about you, but again, sometimes in my prayer life, I get real self-righteous. It's a temptation, isn't it? Because I'm finally doing what I should be doing all the time. I think I got it all figured out. I see some of you, sides, you're laughing, and you're chuckling, not because at me, but it's with me, right? Because we're guilty of it, right? I mean, the first time we've prayed about a situation... And we've, we've done everything else, and we finally come around to prayer, and all of a sudden, this, our prayer sounds like this. God, them, those people are bad. Let me tell you all the bad things they've done. God, did you know that's the way we pray? God, you need to fix them. They have problems. David, David doesn't pray this way, does he? He prays from a position of brokenness. God, you're my only source of hope. Look what he says in verse 3. If you don't prevent it, what will happen is I will be drug off with their wickedness. I'm not righteous in myself. I'm not able to withstand the temptation to be like them. I am like them. He, he, he comes to God with a brokenness. We would, in our prayers, do so much if we would simply pray that God protect us from evil because evil is not what is out there, but it's what's in here. It's what's in here, right? That's the real danger. It's what's in my own heart. Your neighbor sins against you and what do you want to do? You want to strike back? 
That's, that's what I'm talking about. In this prayer, David admits, God, they're striking at me. And if you don't help me, I will strike back. Secondly, in this point, we see that God's justice is supreme over the affairs of men. He's not self-righteous in this prayer. But in verse 4, we get uncomfortable. Admittedly. I do too. Because what does David do? He prays that God gives them justice. Look what he says in verse 4. Give them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. We're real uncomfortable there in our society, aren't we? Because we've misunderstood what Jesus taught us in Matthew 7, verses 1 through 8. We've, we've misunderstood it. You know the verse I'm talking about, right? Chris knows it. Judge not, what? That you be not judged. And so, people who don't have any association with God at all, they know that verse. And when you say to them, man, listen, what you're doing in your life is a destructive pattern. You need Jesus. They say, man, don't judge me. You're going to be judged. That's not what Jesus is saying. We like to quote that verse when we're in a pinch, when we're on the wrong side of the law, so to speak, don't we? My... my uh, my friend and I were having a discussion about that not long ago. Matthew 7. Jesus says, and it's right here with where David is. I'm going to make this connection for you. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you promise you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That's key, isn't it? So what measure are we to determine what is right and what is wrong? What measure? What measure? The Word of God. The Gospel. If you're lost in here today, I want to say something to you real, real blunt. You are under the judgment of God. I didn't say it. God said it. And Jesus would echo that and say, your deeds and your unruly, rebellious heart will gain you Nothing but hell. That's the judgment we should have with those who don't know Him. We should use the measure of the Word of God. We should use the measure of the Gospel. Why do you see, now, now, now He goes further, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of my eye when there's still a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He doesn't say, don't take the speck out of your brother's eye. He says, take the log out of your eye first, David. Now, back to Psalm 28. We're going to apply Matthew 7 right over here so we can all pray just like David did. We can pray this way. This is not simply David praying because he's the king of Israel. This is our prayer. Look what he does in verse 3. Don't drag me off with the wicked in their evil deeds. He's taking the log out of his own eye. He's saying, I'm not righteous. I'm not good. I'm not perfect. I'm evil just like them. If you don't protect me and save me, I will go their way. And then he says, judge them. 
Not based on my standard, but on your standard. Let your righteousness prevail. The righteousness of God means more to God than your comfort, than your name, than your desires. It must be upheld. That's what David is saying. So he's not self-righteous. He's speaking in terms here of brokenness, taking the log out of his own eye, and then he turns and says, evil can't prevail, God. You need to be shown to be righteous on the earth. And he calls on God to judge according to the measure of God's word. They are evil not because David says they're evil. They're evil because God says they're evil. We would do well to really study verses before we quote them out of context. I can't think that, listen, I don't like people to take what I say out of context. I can't imagine that God appreciates our taking Him out of context. So before you proof text and your buddy comes and tells you, hey man, you got this thing going on in your life. I got problems. Look, here's my sins. But look, let me help you. That's a problem. Let me help you with that. And then before you say, well, don't judge unless you're judged, just use it in context. A good question to ask when someone approaches you about your sin, just so you know, I think is this, a good thing to do is to say humbly, listen completely, and then say humbly, thank you. I want to hear that. I want to understand that. And judge whether they're taking the log out of their eye. Have they dealt with their own sin? Are they broken with you? Are they being prideful and self-righteous? There's a difference. You know it. They're coming to you as a brother. They come to you as a judge over you. If they're coming as a brother, don't use Matthew 7, 1, because it only works against you. But receive what they say and humbly be broken like David was in Psalm 28, right here. So he's broken in verse 3, and he prays for God's justice to be vindicated in verse 4 and 5, which leads us to point 3. We praise God for answering our prayer. David responds to God answering his prayer. I believe he responds as God is answering the prayer. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults and with my song I give thanks to him. First of all, God has heard him in verse 6. Notice that. In the past, God has heard him. He's heard the voice of David's cry come before him. He's confident, God has heard me. Okay? But secondly, God is helping him in verse 7. Look what he says. The Lord's my strength and my shield. In, my, in him my heart trusts and I am helped. In the Hebrew, the verb is, I'm being helped. Right now, I am helped. So he said, you heard me, past tense. You're helping me right now. And finally, he says that God will receive praise for helping him. My heart exalts, and with my song, I give thanks to him. Again, the Hebrew indicates what this is, is a, a beginning now and future. It's happening, going to happen in the future. I'm going to praise God for answering me. It reminds me of when Jesus healed the lepers. And they all ran off healed. And one came back and said, thank you. Sometimes we're worse at thanking God than we are at praying, and we're not very good at praying. So all around, we're not doing very well, are we? David's not that way. I've caught myself. Again, it's my confession. Don't you like when the preacher confesses his own sin? 
Makes you feel better, right? How many times in my life has thing, have I prayed over something? And then it happens. And in my stupidity, I sit around and think, well, that happened because of this and that and the other. And I assign it all the way to natural occurrences. I can't imagine. I mean, I, the spirit inside of me when I do things like that, eventually, usually it's a day or two, you know, and he just keeps rubbing on me a little. And then I say, what's, what's the problem? What am I feeling like? And then I think, oh, I gave, I gave glory for the answer to that prayer to everybody but God. David doesn't do that. David called on God as his only hope. David petitioned God that his righteousness and his mercy might prevail over evil. And David was thankful that God was helping him. And finally, when we pray this way, our prayer spreads to others. David starts with himself. He's praying very intimately about his own life, but notice how he ends the psalm. It's not only about David, is it? It's about the whole nation. David opens up to pray for everybody. The Lord is the strength of not just me. He said that earlier, but he says the Lord is the strength of his people. He is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed Israel in this case. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. So David, at the end of all things, expands his personal prayer life to pray for others. Let me encourage you in a practical application of Psalm 28 as we close. When you're praying, begin with you. Begin, begin with a personal prayer about you and God. I would suggest this basic prayer, okay? You, I don't know how you discipline yourself to pray. I hope you are disciplining yourself or you'll wander around and you won't get a lot done. There are some good acrostics out there for you. You can remember this simple one, Acts. Right? Acts, like the book of Acts. Just remember, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and what's last? Supplication. It's what we see in Psalm 28. He starts out with praising God as his help. He petitions God in confession of his own need of God. He thanks God for his actions and he prays for everyone else. Paul prays that way all the time in the New Testament, doesn't he? He starts off praying about a specific situation and then it's like he gets caught up in that prayer and it just expands the whole world. So here is the practical application. Twofold. Christian, pray to God in adoring, confessional, thanksgiving, supplicational ways. Pray. Adore God, confess to God, thank God, and pray for everybody after that. That's the application of Psalm 28 verse those of you who are believers. And secondly, you're sitting in on this family discussion about prayer and you don't know Christ. Your only prayer to Him needs to be a plea for Him to be your hope and to be your salvation. David's able to pray this way because he is a child of God. Nowhere in the Scriptures are people commanded to pray for God's help before He is their salvation. 
He is my help because He is my salvation. So if you don't know Him, I pray that you will know Him. You know, at the end of the day, it's good to model our lives after someone. And the Bible's filled with models, but it's good to have current models, our life models. Some of you have heard this. As a little boy, I spent a lot of time on my family farm. And I, I got tired. Uh, you know, imagine that. Five-year-olds getting tired when it's 100 degrees and we're chopping cotton. All right? Get tired. So usually most days about 10, 1030, my dad or someone would take me to my great-grandmother's house. My great-grandmother was in her late 70s at that time. And in the summer, at 10 o'clock, she had her bonnet on, she had her apron on, she was in the garden working. And when I would come, I learned to never run up talking to her. You know why? Because in that garden, in that hot sun, I can still see her through that bonnet just sweating and the tears mixing with the sweat. And if you weren't running up to talk to her, you could hear her praying. These were not the prayers of a self-righteous, self-sufficient woman. These were the prayers of a woman in her latter years, humbled by a life that had been far from perfect, but confident in a God who was holy and merciful. These were the prayers. Sometimes I would just quietly get in with her. You know, and I'd kind of, so she's picking beans, I'd pick beans, I wouldn't say anything. I know she knew I was there. But she didn't let that bother her. She just kept praying. And she, she followed a method. This is what she did. She would spend what seemed like to a little boy an hour. I'm sure it was 10 minutes, you know, just praying about God. She'd just go through the names of God, or she'd just talk about how great God was, or she would just, and she, she would just, just get wrapped up in it. And then she'd talk about her sin. And then she'd thank God for saving her. Helping her. And then she would move to my favorite part. Because if she knew I was there, she always moved me to the front of the list. I know she did that on purpose. She wasn't really, she didn't always pray for me first. But it was her acknowledgement that I was there with her. And I believe that God answered her prayers because he answered them in my life. Because as a little five-year-old, I would hear in six and seven, I would hear my granny pray that God would send his spirit to change my heart and save me. I heard her pray that God would raise me up to not be perfect but to follow him. I heard her pray that God would use me and I heard her pray from her church friends and others. She approached God like Psalm 28 calls us to. And the second greatest influence of prayer in my life was a lady who in my home church, we had three aisles. She sat right here. Center aisle was here. She was here. Her name was Miss Black. Miss Black was a widow in her mid-80s. And she's the only person to this day I've met 
and spent time with that had a list as it just she wasn't she, she said the only thing I can do is pray I can't do anything else now I'm too old I'm too senile I can't do anything else but I can pray and she had a list and you go visit her house she'd had that list out by her recliner and she prayed for every person in her community of faith every day when she looked you in the eye and said I'm praying for you you knew she was praying Listen, I don't pray enough because I got too much confidence in me and not enough confidence in him. I don't pray enough because I don't see him as my only hope and my only help. I don't pray enough because I'm not thankful enough and I'm not as concerned for you as I should be. Let's pray to our all-sufficient God.